Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. This is Stephen Moe and I'm glad you could join me as today we're going to be speaking with Bill Murphy about the Purpose Capital Impact Fund. Bill is normally based in Tauranga, but he was in Christchurch recently, so I took the chance to find out about what's going on around the country in terms of impact investing. As well as that, we unpack his life, where he's from, what his journey has been, and what it is that motivates him to be involved in the things he's doing today. I also recorded this as a video, so if you go to theseeds.nz, you can see the two of us talking. And if you do look at that, you'll realize quickly that I literally did not edit this interview at all. And just to say thanks to all of you who are leaving ratings and reviews and little comments in social media, it's really appreciated. And it gives me a little lift when I see that other people are enjoying the episodes and sharing them with their friends. I don't think we need more of an introduction than this today, except to say that if you enjoy this interview, there's more than 120 other ones in the back catalog, so you might want to check those ones out as well. Now let's get into this interview with Bill. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Bill Murphy, who's the founder of Enterprise Angels and also the Purpose Capital Impact Fund. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate your being here because you were in a snowstorm in Dunedin just a few hours ago, right? I was, and my colleague who works with me um, in Purpose Capital, uh, who's from Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. um, sent me an email and said she was jealous that I was in a snowstorm. And uh, and I actually really enjoyed it, too, because I'm originally from Boston and the States, and we get lots of snowstorms there. So it was enjoyable from that perspective. But the usual downside of snowstorms and ice is it it creates havoc in transportation, and it did for you in New Zealand this morning, but really pleased to get here. Yeah, um, and the amazing thing, because I was emailing with you like literally an hour ago, and you were still in Dunedin, and, but it's a beautiful sunny day here, so it was like, wow, <laughs> just amazing, isn't it, how yeah. weather can throw things out? Yes, indeed. So what we're going to do on this podcast is um, we're going to talk a little bit about you and your background and where you're from, mm-hmm. and then we're going to go into sort of what you're doing now, and in particular, this impact fund. Like, I, I'm really fascinated. I want to understand sort of the background to it, what you're hoping to do with it, what the future plans are. Um, but if we could just start, let's just rewind to the beginning of your life and just tell us a bit about where you're from. Great. Thank you. Well, as I said, I'm originally from Boston in the States. I come from a, a, an Irish Catholic archetype Um my father was a policeman. My uncles were both firemen. And, and if you've ever watched movies about the States and that part of the world, you'll you'll know that um, that's kind of the, the storyline usually. So, but um, I... And, and had your family, had they been there for generations or or how, yeah, how long had... Because it's an old city, right? <laughs> it's, it's been around for a while. <laughs> it's an old city, but my family is, is not my... Uh, as like a lot of us that live in Boston... We're rel- relatively new new m- migrants to the United States, so mm-hmm. it was my grandparents that came over from Ireland. Oh, okay. uh, so my father was uh, first generation. I'm second generation American. Right. Yeah. And your your grandparents? Did you get to know them and have much to do with them? I did. Yes, yeah. uh, for quite a long time. Yes, because uh, I was one of the oldest grandchildren of 35 cousins. So wow, large. Yeah, large family. Yeah. And what was your memories of them and sort of what had led them to move to America? Probably like a lot of migrants. It was very difficult to get them to talk about Ireland. Right. Um, 
and when we went back to Ireland as a as a family to do our our, our roots trip mm-hmm. to sort of explore our roots, um, they they didn't come with us. Right. And um, I think one way to explain that is is if people real uh, are aware that when people left Ireland for generations, um, they would hold a wake when the person left because conditions were such that uh, nobody dreamed that anyone would be able to ever be able to afford to come back to Ireland. Right. Um, both the trip and also be able to come back and live in Ireland because conditions were so so mm. dire there. Mm. Um, so um, I think in some ways my grandparents uh, had to just put Ireland away, cut mm. that off from their life, and and really focus on making a life in America. Mm. Mm. That's an amazing... It's an amazing mentality, isn't it? Because I've got ancestors who went to America from Norway. Um, it was maybe a little bit earlier, like 1910. Mm. And the conditions that they left were very difficult. It's not the way it is today. And for them as well, they, they never went back. Mm. And it was very much a separation of our new life beginning, which I guess for our generations, you know, we jump on a plane and we can easily yeah. travel around the world. Yeah, and we can be ro- romantic, which is which is fine. We can be romantic about where we come from, but um, they have they have memories. Yeah, uh, and, it, and they're not and oftentimes not pleasant, unfortunately. But it was it was great going back to Ireland. We did meet my grandfather's uncle, who was in the IRA, and he showed us the places he blew up, and so it was great fun. Right, <laughs> I was eighteen at the time, so yeah, that was that was very interesting. Yeah, so you grew up. Um, in Boston, then, um, what was that like? What was your childhood like? What type of things did you enjoy? Yeah, Boston is a is an interesting city, given that it's it's based so much on uh, migration, mm-hmm. but it also has probably fifty universities in a city which is under a million uh, population. Right. So it's kind of a, an ex- a real mix of working class immigrants and extraordinary um, university that sort of atmosphere of a university city. Mm-hmm. Um, I g- grew up in a suburb uh, just to the south of South Boston um, c- called Quincy, and it was the dream of the Irish migrants to Boston. They all ended up living in South Boston. It was their dream to um, f- move out of the city if they could, mm-hmm. and if you moved to Quincy, you made it. So um, Quincy was a city of 100, is a city of 100,000 people. And, uh, and yes, that's where I, that's where I grew up uh, until I, I left at the age of 20. Right. And in, in sort of your childhood and your um, high school years, maybe, what sort of things did you enjoy? I was uh, very, very involved in sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to a Catholic uh, high school. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I played um, ice hockey, um, ran track and field, American football, baseball, the works, whatever I could do. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've, I've always been very interested in sports. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> so that filled up a lot of my time and, and kept me out of trouble. <laughs> um, and uh, I then went from high school on to uh, my first year of university. Uh, that was fine. Uh, that was in a small university locally. I then uh, transferred to a large university, the University of Massachusetts, mm-hmm. that, where I went for a year. And education in the United States is such that you can you can take a very broad approach in your first two years. Mm-hmm. You don't have to um, specialize in the first couple of years. And so, at the year of year two, year 
two, I had no idea what I wanted to major in. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I'm not a person who spins their wheels very, very well. I really have to be um, clear about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I left university and uh, hitchhiked across the country to see if the summer of love was still going in San Francisco. Right. This so was what, the, what years are we talking then? Yeah, so, so we're, we're talking 1974 when I hitchhiked across the States. Okay. So Woodstock is like five years before then? Yeah, that's right. Because that was like the, well, for me anyway, (laughs) as the next generation coming, that's the event that people kind of talk about. Yeah, Yeah, that was the East Coast event. And the West Coast event was San Francisco, Golden State Park, and um, the whole hippie hippie thing. Um, Mm. But by the time I got to San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury, the busiest place in Haight-Ashbury was the free medical clinic because the hangover had definitely set in from all those years of excess in the 60s. And so it wasn't quite the place it was in the 60s, but it was still a very vibrant and very interesting place in those days. Yeah. So your decision to do that hitchhiking across the country, like, was that a moment that you made that decision or it had been building for a while? Or how would you place that in your your story? It had been building for a while. I was Almost none of my family has left uh, the, uh, the community that we grew up in. Um, I'm one of the very few that has, and I think that was always going to be the case. I just think I always knew that um, I uh, I didn't I didn't want to become a policeman. <laughs> so right, uh, yeah. So um, so I think I always knew that I was going to leave. Um, it what, was just a what matter set of you apart there then from the people who stayed. Like what what was it that shaped you that way or was it just you were born that way yeah um i think probably born that way mm-hmm. mm. yeah just a just a, a a thirst and a desire for something more mm. um yeah something yeah something more then i think that's characterized my whole life hmm. yeah interesting well yeah. let's explore that as we get okay. going through the life <laughs> so you so you hitchhiking across the country what's what's going through your mind at that point um let's see uh, be, uh, being brave. I remember my father, um, I, I announced my parents, they, they knew that I was going to be going, but I announced my parents one morning, uh, this is the day. And, um, and my father uh, was home uh, in his police cruiser, in his police car. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, at least let me get, because I was going to just start hitchhiking right from my, from the house. Right. He said, at least uh, let me take you out to the to the to the expressway to the highway um and so i said okay and he had a partner with them two mm-hmm. policemen and a, a police car so the, the police car <laughs> took me out to the highway and i can remember from my father that was a very sad moment for him of mm-hmm. course you know mm-hmm. letting go of his eldest son um do you remember do you remember any of the conversation as he's driving you out i don't know yeah. i don't remember any of the conversation I just do remember that was a, um, a very memorable moment for me because I didn't, didn't often see my father like that. Right. Um, and I, I realized at that moment how hard it was for both he and my mother, but I also was ex- extremely clear in, in myself that this was something that I had to do. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so it would have been a very difficult thing for them uh, having their son hitchhike. I wouldn't accept you know, a plane trip or a, or a Greyhound bus or anything. I was just going to do it that way. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I had some uh, very interesting um, uh, pickups uh, and, and during that trip, um, but fortunately made it safely eventually to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. A bit of a detour, 
I was um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I had been picked up by a, a truck driver, mm-hmm. and uh, he stayed the night. And if anyone, if, for the listeners who have been to the states, you'll if you've been in the middle of the states, you'll you'll know that truck stops there are like mini cities. So he stopped in a truck stop in in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the more I slept next to the cab, he slept in in the cab. So I slept outside on the on the uh, tarmac. And in the morning, he said, sorry, I can't take you any further. There's somebody else from my trucking company, and if they say I've got you, then I'll get in trouble. Right. So I was stuck in Tulsa. I eventually got caught up, uh, got picked up by a guy who was going to the north rim of the Grand Canyon to plant trees with a bunch of hippies uh, as a way of saving money to buy a commune in Idaho. And um, so when we got to Flagstaff, which was the decision point, do I go north with him or do I continue west? I thought, what the heck? So I went for a month with them and, and uh, planted trees, um, yeah, mm. in the Grand Canyon area. Mm. Interesting. Mm. And after that month, you then continued on the journey? Yes. You, and you weren't tempted to go to Idaho? And no, I, wa- I wasn't. I don't know that I, uh, that I was invited. I can't remember. But, yeah, I was um, yeah, headed on to San Francisco, mm. yeah, and really d- didn't know anybody there. So yeah. started off sleeping in parks and things, but right. uh, yeah, eventually uh, made connections and yeah. So you've had an interesting life already, I can tell, <laughs> you know, to, to, to go from that, because um, presumably you haven't got much money, right? You're just yeah, you're out sleeping right. in the park, you, you know. Um, yeah. What, what do you think that did for your mindset or your way of looking at the world? It was wonderful. It was wonderful freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was what, really what I was looking for, which was um, to be free of um, expectations that I would continue on and, and, and fit into the mold of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. So it was really liberating in that way. Uh, I'm sure it was also scary as well. Um, but it was, it was still a time of a lot of turmoil. Um, the Vietnam War was, was closing out, was just coming to an end. So there was still a lot of turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I was feeling that in part of that, um, just wanting to break free and felt that there were, it was a time when I could do that. Mm, yeah. So what happens next? <laughs> I went to Oregon to, um, to um, well, I'm just trying to remember the name of it, Eugene, Oregon, right. University of Oregon, because my roommate at the University of Massachusetts had moved out there. So I lived with my re- old roommate uh, for a month and uh, cut down trees in uh, warehouse of forests in mm. Oregon. Yep. Um, so that was sort of the... The uh, the uh, al- alternative or the opposite of what I did in on the Grand Canyon, mm. and uh, was there for about a month, and then um, he had a cousin who lived in San Francisco, and I went to San Francisco to live with his cousin, which was my first place to live in San Francisco. Right. So mm-hmm. how long had you been in Oregon? Just a short time. Yeah, I think yeah. I was only there for about a month. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a, it's just coincidences of life because my father worked for Warehouser Corporation oh, okay. <laughs> back in the 1970s. So right, um, right. it might have been a little crossover of um, paths because yes. we lived there for about five years. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we came to New Zealand. So ah. there you uh, go. Mm. So you end up back in California. And yes. What, I mean, now nowadays, you know, Silicon Valley is quite famous and you know, worldwide tech center and things. What, what was going on at that time? in San Francisco I would I would have been completely oblivious to any of that so this was 1975 mm-hmm. um, yes I Yes, Microsoft had started by then. Mm. I'm not. No, I actually I don't think it had because mm. um, I think um, Bill is uh, younger than me. So uh, and I'm not sure, even sure if Apple had started yet. Mm. 
No, I'm not. I don't think that they had. So it was pre all pre all of that. Um, I the thing that I had in my mind when I went to San Francisco was um, I was either going to uh, save up money and then go hitchhike all over Europe, mm-hmm. um, or I was going to find a guru. Mm. And uh, and I found a guru. So that this may be an interesting chapter in the story for listeners. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. So. Um, uh, he was a Westerner. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, they, uh, the, the group had a bookstore um, in, in San Francisco, which I used to go to because I, was, I, was, I had already started doing yoga at university, so I was starting to really get interested in um, those types of things, Eastern religion, and, and that was part of my exploration. of it, My exploration wasn't just an exploration of traveling around the world. It was also a, a real interest in... I guess what makes us tick to put right. it in simple to put it in simple terms, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, yes, yeah, so I got involved in um, that organization um, for quite a few years, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't really pay much attention at all to career or money or any of those things. My priority was um, uh, living a spiritual life and uh, and. And helping others, and mm. so um, that was from the age of twenty till until I was thirty-three. Right. Wow. Yeah. Quite a long time. And yeah. during that time, we, um, my wife and I, who's a New Zealander, uh, and who I met a couple of years after that, mm-hmm. um, my wife and I uh, went, came back to New Zealand in nineteen eighty, and we established a bookstore in High Street in Auckland. Okay. Uh, and we would uh, run courses. We would run at those in those days. We would import um, film. In canisters from Australia, and we'd show films on Carl Jung and um, just a whole range of different topics, everything from psycho- psychology through to spirituality through to uh, a whole range of things. Mm-hmm. And so, the, so it was a center for those types of activities. Right, and the bookstore became a hub for people who were interested. Yes, yeah, yeah. and if they were particularly interested in um, what we were involved in, then uh, great, they could, um, they could. Um, Yes, yeah, seek more information about that. Yeah, and did that in, did that involve community living as well, or was it, or not? <laughs> yeah, there was a um, we uh, we owned a property in Northern California, which was what we called a sanctuary. It was a um, it was a, an old um, uh, health spa. Um, it had a lot of um, hot springs, uh, and so we had uh, so the group had that land up there. But most of us uh, lived in households, and um, mm-hmm. and multiple, uh, two or three families living in a household together, large homes mm-hmm. throughout the San Francisco area primarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you came back to New Zealand, was it continuing on that thread, the link back with that organization, or was it, it quite was. separate? Or, okay. Yeah, it was continuing on that, and it was working with people who were interested in those types of things here in New Zealand mm-hmm. and uh, running the bookstore. Um, and um, after three years here in New Zealand, we went uh, to the UK and did the same thing there, uh-huh. opened a bookstore there and, and worked with people in the UK that were interested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know we're, we're going to talk about purpose, and you know that's kind of a theme of where we're about to head to. Was that, obviously it was a time in your life when you were finding purpose, and that it, could you just talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Let's see. Um, yeah, I, I was I was brought up a Roman Catholic, and a lot of I found a lot of the people that were very interested in and in, in getting involved in spiritual matters 
um, either had a strong Catholic upbringing or Jewish upbringing. It was quite interesting. Mm. Um, and I think that sort of sets a course for you may push outside of your conventional religious boundaries, um, but I think um, for those of us that wouldn't possibly, for those of us that would have been brought up in a strong uh, religion, um, when you go to, to, to seek for answers, you, you may push off a lot of what the religion represented, but you still might seek for those things in, a, in, a, in a, some form of, of a spiritual, mm-hmm. spiritual answers or a spiritual search. Right. And uh, that's always been the case for me. So that's, mm-hmm. the core of, that's the core of who I am. It's also the core of why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, and so, yes, that does involve, that does involve meditation as a discipline. Um, it, also, it involves um, um, not belief systems, but um, actual um, practice of and realization of um, the depth that we, ha- we are as human beings, mm-hmm. our connection to each other. And um, and uh, and um, yes, uh, what we are in what I would say capital truth, which has to do with our consciousness um, and who we are in uh, beyond um, beyond our ego and, and beyond how we typically think of ourselves. Mm. There's much more depth to us than I than what we typically uh, think of ourselves as having. So mm. that really is w- the wellspring of. Um, of uh, yeah, my of me and and the work that I do, mm. and that's particularly in contrast to sort of the modern Western individualistic view, I guess, isn't it? It is, Wh- yeah. Which is more about how much money am I making and have I got a nice house or a new car? <laughs> that, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's so that's right. It, it, the ex- yeah, it, the expression of that um, yeah yeah looks different, I guess, than than the way we've our society runs currently Mm. indeed so you end up back in new zealand obviously because you're here (laughs) um can you just describe us uh, describe for us some of the next years and kind of what led you i guess to tauranga and and what you've been involved in sure so um we eventually moved back to new zealand in 1987 and that was a challenging time in New Zealand, the late mm-hmm. 80s. So we lived here for three years and then moved back to the States and lived in Seattle for six years. Um, but I realized um, quite a long time ago that New Zealand was now home. Mm-hmm. It really was where my heart was. And so we were always going to, always going to come back here. Um, in those years, I uh, went back to university because uh, by that time I had a family and, um, and did the most practical degree I could possibly do, which was by no means my passion nor my strength, and that was accounting. Um, and so I qualified as a certified public accountant in the United States, and then when we moved to New Zealand, became a chartered accountant here. And that was really just to add those hard skills to my natural, softer skills, um, but also to hope to put that into the bag and not have to pull that out again as a career, because that really wasn't um, that really wasn't uh, what really. Um, inspired me um, but accounting and business has been um, has been the path through which I've been able to express um, um, uh, change mm. um, and so uh, when we came back to New Zealand and this time it was Tauranga in 1996 um, I became the general manager of an electronic instrumentation company uh, known as Blue Lab today 
Uh, that company was sold. The new owner took over, and I could tell he, he was going to be able to be uh, run the show. So I then uh, left and helped establish Priority One, which is the Economic Development Agency in Tauranga, okay. and then went back into a business consultancy. And it was at that point that um, people looking for investment opportunities um, and also entrepreneurs looking for investors started to approach me. Right. Um, and I realized oh my gosh, we have no early stage investing ecosystem in New Zealand. At that time, uh, if someone wanted to raise capital, um, they, if they were brave enough, they picked up the phone and called the local rich guy. Um, so having been, coming from the States, I was aware of how, how sophisticated and developed that ecosystem was there. And I just, mm. I just said, we absolutely have to have that here. And I can't mm. imagine why we don't. Mm. So uh, 12 years later, we certainly have that in New Zealand now. Certainly, obviously, not solely down to me. I was just one of the people that yeah, was involved. Yeah, and the outworking of that became Enterprise Angels. Is That's that? right. Yeah, yeah. So Enterprise Angels was formed um, to, uh, and we were aware that um, Ice Angels had been formed in Auckland. So it was uh, to create a group so that we could um, we could match up the entrepreneurs with the investment opportunities. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I guess just talk us through, talk us through that. What are some of the challenges that entrepreneurs are facing in getting access to capital? And then what are some of the challenges that investors face when they come to invest in a company or an organization or whatever? Sure. Um, I'm just curious on your perspective, having been involved in that scene mm. for a while. Yeah. So Enterprise Angels has invested 40 million in 80 companies. Um, so we've had, yes, we've had a lot of exposure to lots of different companies. Mm -hmm. um, the, the market here has matured quite a lot. In the early days, um, most of my work was helping entrepreneurs to understand what investors were going to expect mm -hmm. and helping them to prepare themselves to actually approach investors. About six years ago, that really started to change where mm -hmm. the entrepreneurs themselves um, were coming already prepared more and more. And nowadays, that's always the case. Yeah. So that's that's been a great uh, great sign of um, maturity in the market. Mm. Um, and by prepared, do you mean that they've got structures which make sense and they've got um, clear documents that, that, you know, good contracts in place, they've got pitch decks that talk about what they do, that type of preparation? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yes. And they've got a business model, and they also understand the stage that angel investors um, are most likely to invest, mm -hmm. and therefore they approach, they wait and they approach at that point. Right. So there's a sophisticated understanding as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so uh, there is um, the challenge for entrepreneurs in raising capital um, currently in New Zealand, mm, just the challenges that are always there um, in having um, a model that can that has the potential to really scale mm -hmm. because the risks are so high for early stage um, business investing that the prize, the potential prize has to also be very, mm. very large. Um, and so that's a, that, can be a, that can be a real challenge for mm. New Zealand entrepreneurs to be able to tell that story in a way that investors will come on board. Mm -hmm. um, and for investors, the challenge for them, well, first off valuations, which are tending to be too high in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, entrepreneurs will sometimes come to us um, uh, having looked at valuations in the United States mm -hmm. and um, 
and will mimic those, those valuation levels. But what the entrepreneurs are not taking into account is um, that those entrepreneurs are already in market. Uh, they already have um, their next round of capital um, people lined up. They're, they've got their customers right where they are and a whole range of other mm-hmm. um, positive things happening because they are already in, in market. Our entrepreneurs have to get from New Zealand into those markets. Right. And so uh, the cost of that bridge and the risk involved in that bridge of getting into market um, needs to be reflected in their valuations and mm. isn't always. So mm. that's that's usually something that gets investors grumpy. <laughs> mm. And I guess the you know t- picking up on what you said, the potential or the the scalability of it, you really need to go to those bigger markets. So that's the that's the hurdle to go from a New Zealand-based company into the larger, whether it's Europe or the U.S. or other places, isn't it? Like it, New Zealand's a great testing place. If you can prove it works here, then it probably will work there. But it's yep. that next stage, isn't it, of it is. actually going. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's really good. Um, and just talk to us. I'm just really curious about the term angel. <laughs> yeah. um, because, um, you know, I, I work a lot with entrepreneurs and people who are looking for investment. And some of them probably wouldn't describe that early <laughs> stage capital as, like, angel has really positive connotations, doesn't it? You know, like coming to save you and, and help you. But um, some people might argue that actually that people would come in and, and take a large chunk of equity without actually giving much back and mm. impose restrictions and the way things are to be done. What would be your sort of take on it? Well, the term angel investor comes from Broadway back in the 1920s, I think, when um, altruistic people would put money up to help put on Broadway plays. Oh, okay. And uh, and so they were called angel investors. And for some reason, that is what early stage That's business investors are called. Yeah. How did it translate from that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, it uh, it all depends on which side of the fence you're on. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you often act for the entrepreneur. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, um, there's, there's, there's a view from that side of the fence. The investors have a view from their side. Yeah. Um, I think that... Um, Investors coming on board and not providing a lot besides money um, is more prevalent with investors who we might call a simply high net worth individuals mm-hmm. rather than angel investors who are part of an angel group. Um, because in an angel group, um, there are um, there's a way of going about investing, and it's always about um, smart money. Mm-hmm. It's always about um, getting people around the company who can really help the company to go forward. And that's in our interests if we've invested in the company. Mm. And that's also the way we feel that we should go about it. So angel investing, when it works well, brings tremendous um, connections, contacts, and hopefully wisdom Mm. that really helps a company to realize its potential. Mm. Um, And that's the way we try to go about the work that we do. Um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I was just playing devil's advocate there, yeah, you know, just good. to yeah. tease out that um, that issue. Because, yeah, I, I've acted for the other side of the fence as well, where it's an, an impact investor or someone wanting to buy into a company. So I can see the value of what they bring. Often, like yeah. you say, the experience and the knowledge of we've done this number of times and here's some key things, particularly like if you're going overseas, you know, yeah. there's some basic things that you could probably get right. 
Yeah. 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 That's Absolutely. right. Mm. And so the way it works is you've got an angel group, like a number of investors that come together. And then I presume you've got like pitch evenings and things where people will come and present. And then if the group decides they might collectively invest, is that how it mainly works? Or? Enterprise Angels is a, um, uh, is a unique model of angel investing in New Zealand in, right. in that um, most of the angel groups on the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States in particular uh, are run by the members themselves. There's, mm-hmm. there's very little administration um, involved in those groups. So the members find the investment opportunities, bring them into a group, populate that opportunity amongst the other members, put together a due diligence team, mm-hmm. um, secure the investment, and one of them gets put onto the board of the, of the company. Mm-hmm. So very much run by the members themselves. That was a model that I, didn't, I knew was not going to work for... Um, our let's say our group, which is in Tauranga and and Hamilton, so the Waikato and the Bay of Plenty. Yeah. Um, the our, the difference between the U.S. groups and in the groups here is in the U.S. 70, 80 percent of the members are retired, and some of them are 30 years old and retired. So in other words, they're exited um, IT entrepreneurs largely. Mm-hmm. Um, the groups in the in New Zealand, 90 percent of the members are all working. Right. So that plus New Zealanders are not Americans, mm. which is a good thing. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Americans can be absolutely rabid about things, and um, I could, I can, I knew New Zealanders just the New Zealanders I was working with just weren't. Uh, mm. Angel investing was important to them, but it wasn't their whole life. Mm. So we've established um, a managed model of an, an angel investing. We have six staff, um, and we manage the entire process. I and, see. The, and the strength of an angel group is the members, but it's not in turning the members into capital raising experts. It's drawing on the expertise that the members already have, mm-hmm. because no matter what investment opportunity comes to us, we have we have members who have deep experience in, the, in that industry sector. Mm-hmm. And so it's drawing upon that expertise to guide the due diligence and then the, the, the uh, company going forward. Um, and it's also the, um, the confirmation that those people give when they invest into a company. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the five members of our group who have deep experience in the dairy industry are all investing their personal money into an investment opportunity, that sends a very strong mm-hmm. signal to everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so that's where an angel group works the best. I so see. we take all that load of term sheet negotiation, the legals and all that stuff. We take that off the members. We, the, my staff does all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm used to saying my staff. I, I, I've recently been, um, uh, I've recently stepped aside as, as uh, executive director of Enterprise Angels. Nina Lolevra is now, from, who's from Christchurch, by the way, mm-hmm. is now the CEO, mm-hmm. and uh, I've taken on the executive chair role. Mm. Oh, that's good. That's helpful, though, to think through the different models and, and understand the differences. And, you know, I, I can understand that different cultural ways of doing things as well and different approaches. So can you just tell us a little bit about this new fund? Um, how, what was the genesis for that? And what what are you aiming for with it? Because I know it's got a unique, you know, that word purpose, it's got a unique, um, a unique approach. So can you just describe about uh, what that's about? You bet. So that's a nice segue. So my move into the executive chair role of Enterprise Angels is to free, free up my time so that I can um, put it into my next passion, um, which is Purpose Capital Impact Fund and impact investing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I turned to my board and I said, um, you have to have a raging fire 
to be driving angel investing the way I've been doing for the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can tell that the fire is starting to burn down a bit. And maybe that's because I'm the kind of person that loves a challenge in the early in the early years and loves establishing things mm. or or whatever it is but it was the case so i said to the board we should start thinking about a succession plan and so i started looking around at what else i might do mm-hmm. and i and i started to look more and more at impact investing and i realized that in some ways um, new zealand was once again in the place that it was 10 years ago with angel investing which was um why the heck uh, aren't we doing this here? It's been going on for 20 years in the States, and it's, it's raging away in Europe, and it's nothing's happening in New Zealand, um, formally, uh, as, as called impact investing. And so I can't help myself. It, for me, it was a wonderful, it's, it, this is a wonderful opportunity for me to be able to um, do things that, are, that I regard as being uh, more of a ref- reflection of who I am, mm-hmm. but also in creating more of a capital D difference. Because what always drives me in anything I do is, is can I make a difference? Um, and um, so impact investing, um, because, it's in, because its primary focus is social and environmental change, um, I just felt it was, you know, it was just obvious for me as the next thing that I would do. Um, so started to research that a lot, uh, went to a couple of SOCAPs. Um, so if listeners are aware, SOCAP is the granddaddy of all um, impact investing events, which happens in San Francisco each uh, northern hemisphere, fall, September, October. 3,500 people. It's, yeah, it's a wonderful event. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started going to events like that and started really exploring and learning about impact. And then I started reflecting on what I thought would work in New Zealand um, at this very, very early stage of things. I was aware of Jamie Newth's great work in establishing Soul Capital, and I was aware of Akina and Newground Capital um, as they start, as they uh, established Impact Enterprise Fund. Mm-hmm. And so I took some learnings from, from those, and um, probably the main... Uh, one of the main um, first uh, learnings or points was I felt um, in looking around the world and talking to other people, if I felt that the philanthropic sector in New Zealand needed to lead into this work. Mm. The commercial sector is already doing what it does, and knowing the commercial sector as well as I do and high net worth individuals, I didn't feel without the philanthropic sector making a commitment to impact investing, I didn't think I would be able to get significant amounts of capital and assistance from them. So then I started thinking about, okay, well, where's philanthropic funds in New Zealand? And uniquely um, uh, in all the world, most philanthropic wealth in New Zealand, um, albeit we have wonderful people like Stephen Tyndall and other um, family uh, foundations, but most philanthropic wealth in New Zealand is held by the regional trusts. Mm. So... um, I already had relationships, um, given that I've been in Tauranga for so, for so long and done a lot of work in Hamilton, had relation, uh, relationships with those trusts. Mm-hmm. And so started to have a conversation with the trust managers um, to get a feeling for where they were at with impact investing and also, very importantly, how far along the journey their trustees were. I was very fortunate in that Bay Trust, led by Alistair Rhodes, and Well Energy Trust, led by Raywin Jones, um, they themselves personally and therefore their trustees also were pretty 
pretty aware of uh, impact investing. And in fact, in the case of Bay Trust, um, we're already doing, uh, let's call it impact investing in the form of of, um, uh, uh, loans and and, uh, mechanisms like that. Mm -hmm. So so I picked up the conversation with them and started painting a picture of um, what if I was able to bring the expertise of the commercial business and, com- and commercial investment sector into impact investing to guide impact investment decisions, and I was able to bring capital from that sector along with capital from uh, the uh, regional trusts. What if we were able to do that together and do impact investing rather than what the trusts had historically done, which was take their entire corpus, all their wealth, and give and, and um, give that wealth to investment advisors who invested their funds all over the world, and then the small amount of income that came off that um, provide that income uh, in the form of not-for-profit grants uh, grants to not-for-profit organizations, mm-hmm. um, which is doing very very important community wealth. But 99% of the wealth of the regional trust was unavailable to benefit the community. Mm. Impact investing says to a regional trust. What if we took one, two, three percent? These regional trusts um, oftentimes have half a million, half a half a billion dollars in wealth. Mm. What if we took a, a percentage of that and and invested that into the into making a difference in the community rather than just through the grant funding? Why don't we Why don't we head down that route, informed by the by the commercial community on what's the best investment decisions, mm. and um, let's see if we can't really apply that wealth more of that wealth to make more of a difference in New Zealand. Mm. And, so, um, and so we've been successful in that. In that. Um, well Energy Trust, TECT, and Bay Trust have all committed $5 million each mm. to Purpose Capital Impact Fund. Mm. Eastland Community Trust um, is uh, in the process of due diligence. Uh, the trustees have approved a $5 million investment. And there are other trusts that we're talking to. But at this stage, we're really focusing now on the corporate sector and high net worths because um, I, I really, really believe and know that we can bring uh, capital from that sector as well mm-hmm. um, to impact investing. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, it, I agree with you. It's, it's kind of because uh, we were at the Philanthropy New Zealand event in May, right? And there was a session about impact investing. And it, the, the mood in the room, certainly it felt like this is a way forward mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than because like you say some of these trusts and others have literally hundreds of millions of dollars and you look at what what's being invested in and think if you could leverage that what an impact that would actually make exactly. which ultimately comes back to a common word that we've bandied around before which is social enterprise you know the idea that a business can actually affect change through its business model mm-hmm. and that's what you're really talking about isn't it that impact investing can empower companies to then make change? Very simply, um, impact investing uh, in that investment model uh, for investment return is completely inappropriate for many things. But there are initiatives, there are projects, there are businesses that are involved or can be involved in in driving social or environmental change where um, running that, that initiative with those commercial business and investment disciplines, not only um, stabilizes that initiative, 
but it allows it to scale uh, because it's no longer having to re- rely solely on handouts in the form of grant funding um, or government funding, um, but, it, but it now is able to become self-generating and it can scale, it can attract more capital. Mm-hmm. So just, as, just in the way commercial ventures look to be able to scale to increase their profits and their uh, customer base, we can use the, that same model and tweak it um, and, um, and help to scale um, environmental and social change. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So the, the, in terms of what you're aiming for, like the total value of the fund that you're targeting, um, that would be interesting to hear. And then what, what, what are you going to look to invest in? Mm. What's going to be the criteria? How do you work out if something is going to have impact or not? It's a 20 to $30 million fund, um, and um, unlike uh, the Impact Enterprise Fund, um, it, uh, I knew that I, I would be much, much harder to get the trusts on board if, I, if the investments uh, looked um, somewhat risky. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, um, it's not a private equity uh, type fund like Impact Enterprise Fund, mm-hmm. which has about, uh, I think, a 15% target return rate. It's entirely appropriate that a fund like that is in the marketplace, mm-hmm. but, I, but I, I, I couldn't get those trusts to invest in one like that. So it's a, um, it's a 6% uh, net of fees IRR return fund. Um, it will be focused on asset-backed um, investments, so not investments into early-stage social enterprise. Angel investors will support that. We've surveyed the Enterprise Angels members, and many of them are, are anxiously looking for those types of opportunities to invest in. So I'm very confident that um, we'll get support for early-stage social enterprise from angel investors. Um, but Purpose Capital Fund will have to stick with things like uh, commercial models that we understand very, very well. And the three that I could highlight um, are um, the dairy sector, mm-hmm. uh, the horticulture sector, mm-hmm. and property. Right. Um, and um, rather than taking idealistic ideas out of the sky and trying to create a business model around them, mm-hmm. um, we, we're looking at working through business models that we understand very, very well commercially and using those business models um, as Trojan horses for delivering the social or environmental change. Mm. Um, so in the dairy sector, for instance, um, uh, finding um, the, the top most motivated um, dairy farmers who really want to, to make the environmental and efficiency gains uh, on farm who understand innately what those what they should be doing, mm-hmm. but simply don't have the capital because one of the reasons because the banks are retracting from the dairy sector, mm-hmm. they don't have the capital to implement the change. So we would go in, we would enable them to make those changes, apply the equipment systems to be able to do that, and we would then use those farms as models that could be emulated by other dairy farmers to, to really try to push the sector um, to to really take the, the the pressure off the environmental. Uh, damage that the sector is currently doing. Horticulture, so that's an environmental focus. In the horticulture sector, we see a lot of potential for social uh, benefit and social change, primarily working with Maori. There are already some really interesting models uh, um, in the Eastern Bay of Plenty and the Gisbert region in, in the horticulture sector, gold kiwi fruit and others, the Miro Berry Initiative. So working very closely with Maori um, to uh, deliver sticky um, social change in 
um, areas where there's multi-generational problems and mm -hmm. issues. And if we have time, I could give you a, a brief example on that. Mm -hmm. So um, an initiative that's um, that's been going for a, a year or two is, is called Hua Kiwi, mm -hmm. and that's where financiers will, um, uh, will uh, discuss with Maori the utilization of Maori land, which currently may be fallow or maybe growing maize, uh, a low, uh, low income uh, crop, um, and put the gold kiwi fruit infrastructure on um, that Maori owned land. Um, bring in um, kiwi fruit managers to manage that and partner with Maori, uh, providing em uh, employment and training as part of that. Mm. The financiers, uh, after year 11, 12, um, will have achieved their financial return on that, and they will simply walk away from that development, and the development is forevermore owned by Maori on Maori-owned land, mm -hmm. uh, which is a couple of years ago as a commercial person, I would have thought, well, that sounds great. That's a real win-win. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is great in many ways, but so much more can be done with a project like mm -hmm. that. So purpose capital investing into a project like that would, turn to the, would first of all consult deeply with Maori as to how we could use this to really um, cause lasting change in, in their community. And then we'd turn to the financiers and say, okay, you've, we've, you've modeled this to get the return in year 11. What if we make it year 12? And what if we do these things? Mm. Wouldn't, how proud would we feel about that? Mm. So um, we hope to be able to use horticulture in that kind of way. And then, of course, property, as mm. everyone knows. Um, we most likely will be looking at innovative models of, uh, of um, social housing, potentially co-housing and cooperative housing as well, which I know is, um, uh, is uh, there's a growing number of models of that in Auckland, Queenstown, here in Christchurch. Mm, mm. That's great. Well, it, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to watch it develop. And the thing that strikes me is I keep hearing words like social enterprise and people get confused about what it means. But I view it as just one example or one symptom of a paradigm shift of thinking that's happening. And I think impact investing is another example of this sort of new way of thinking intergenerationally using stewardship, kaitiakitanga, you know, guardianship that, that we aren't inheriting from our parents, we're holding on trust for our children. You know, and not to put it too simplistically or make it sound all airy-fairy and beautiful rainbows and things, but that actually there is a paradigm shift happening of thinking among people who have resources and have wealth and that we might actually see a shift and a change. Um, and I see this as an example of that. So Yes. Yeah. Well, what we've got um, coming up is uh, we're going to have some people come in and hear you share about your journey and things. So we need to finish off the podcast. But I just want to say thank you so much for um, yeah coming on and sharing a bit about um, what you're involved in. I can see real echoes of it through your life, which is always it's not surprising, but it's always nice to see that. Um, and if people are interested, um, what I'll do is video the session that we're about to have with the people here in Canterbury. And then, um, yeah, they'll be able to watch that video as well. But thank you so much right. for coming on the show. Ben, thanks so much for the work you're doing, Stephen, and for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bill. I know for me, there were several things that stood out, in particular, his journey, what's led him to what he's doing today, and also just thinking about impact investing and the fact that consumers and others are looking for more impact in what they do. If you enjoy this interview, then check out some of the earlier ones as well. Until next time. Mm -hmm.